Hello and welcome to the Powerful Personal Brand Podcast, where we help and inspire you to build a great personal brand to increase your visibility and authority. I'm your host, Claire Bond, and on today's episode, I'm so excited to be joined by Michael S. Seaver. Michael S. Seaver is an award-winning executive coach, leadership consultant, keynote speaker, and author. He's on a mission to unlock human potential to help people uncover and live their purpose and live a more meaningful and authentic life. His unique methodology has revolutionized how leaders can live authentically and how organizations engage employees. He offers no-nonsense strategies to help people find confidence in their life's narrative, commonalities across generations working today, and ways to communicate with emotional intelligence. Welcome, Michael. Thank you for being here. my pleasure. Thank you, Claire, for having me. Yeah, this is so great. So, so many interesting topics. We are just going to really dig in to, so you help your clients create their unique leadership brand based on five pieces of information that you collect. So what are those five pieces and how do you use those to build your clients' core values, goals, uh, UVP, unique value proposition? Just tell me a little more about that. Sure. I like on on your website how you talk about how a brand is others' perception of you. And I think the core of really getting to the point of understanding your own brand is to determine what's your own perception of yourself, right? What's your level of Mm. self-awareness? So the five data pieces or sources, if you will, are the DISC assessment, which is you can use any other kind of personality assessment that's similar, but it's an overt behavioral style, right? It's really a good, strong look at yourself. The second piece is something called the 12 driving forces, which is an underlying motivator, right? It's why you do what you do. And there are kind of 12 kind of core motivators. Third thing is core values, which you just referenced a second ago. And I like to see these as being lessons learned uh, through many experiences that you've had in your life. The fourth piece is a little bit more subjective. It's it's a past, present, and future Q&A that anybody can answer for themselves, but oftentimes it's done well with someone near them. And then the fifth thing I refer to as authority because it's like your strengths, your skill set, the talents that you have in those unique experiences. And so if you have these kind of five pieces, these five data sets, undoubtedly, if you take the time to reflect on it enough, you're going to find that there are probably six, seven, or eight patterns that exist across all of them. Right. And I think mm-hmm. that that's really the important piece is to find the patterns or the themes or the currents that exist across all. And so what I do is I look at the patterns as because if there's a consistency across many of the data sets, that's powerful because there's something else going on there that we need to pay attention to. So we take the patterns and themes and we sit down and we say, how can I write a one sentence mission statement that starts with I exist too, and then the person can fill in the blank based on the material that exists inside the patterns. Now for the core values, the assessment that I utilize, they come up with six, but you're welcome to focus on one, three, or all six, that's your choice. But these are really foundational beliefs about that help to kind of guide your choices. And the fourth thing, Mm -hmm. goals, the way that I see this is, is that In the past, present, and future Q&A, I set a baseline with the present Q&A, and then at the future, we're kind of identifying what's this ideal future. So when we set goals, we're just identifying the gap that exists between the baseline, which is the present, and then the future, right? So what are the things that we need to do tactically to make that future version of yourself reality? And then last piece, Mm -hmm. the unique value proposition. Uh, This is a really key piece because it's oftentimes the summary on LinkedIn or maybe at the top of your resume, or sometimes it's an executive biography, but it's really one, two or three paragraphs that really describe your expertise. So 
I'm a little bit of an introvert, kind of a dork, uh, Claire. So it's like, I want to collect all this data, find the patterns across them, and then write really solid statements that help to define what our brands are. Yeah. Well, so it, what, what I think is interesting is I've, I, you know, worked with like business coaches and other people that a lot of people that, that are trying to help you define like who you are. And I really love that you use data because in my business, and my, my, you know, co-founder, he is all about the data. And I think that there's, there's, yeah, you know, as you mentioned before, like personal branding, it's not, it's not for you, right? You're trying to get across who you are and, and how you can help and um, all that kind of stuff. And you can't really do that if you're just kind of like in your own world, focused on yourself, you have to have these external data points. So I, I think that's absolutely, it's such a cool thing. And it's, I don't really see a lot of people doing that. Hmm. And I think that that is, you know, or it, it really kind of in that way, using multiple data points. I think it's just, I don't know. I just, I think <laughs> it's such a great, I, I can't even think of a exactly way. Yeah, thank you. No, I just think it's such a great way to figure out who you are because you actually have data to back it up. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, I, whereas like somebody's trying to, you know, to, to, to find these words and make things up right? To, to, to make it sound so perfect, these brand statements and everyone gets so obsessed with it. But yeah, yeah. if you have data and sometimes do you find that there are people that don't like the results? Yes, of course. Yeah. And, and that's okay. <laughs> right. Because oftentimes if a person hasn't done these assessments before, or they haven't really mm -hmm. looked at themselves in that level of depth, some of the things that they discover are a little bit jarring and that's okay. Right. There's there's always mm -hmm. this part of ourselves that we need to kind of identify or recognize and say, how do we fix that or repair that or show the brighter side of ourselves? And so that's OK. It happens. Yeah. And I mean, so is is the disk assessment similar to to like the Myers-Briggs type? Yeah. OK. Yeah. So I remember taking a Myers-Briggs back in college and I don't think I would have the same results now. Do you find that that's, I mean, like it, it was saying that I'm like a very um, outgoing person and sometimes I am, but I'm also kind of one of those people that wants to kind of feed their soul by being slightly introverted. So do you find that people change over time? Yeah, there are definitely learned behaviors that we pick up as okay. time passes and progresses. So your Emergenetics, your DISC, your Predictive Index, your Myers-Briggs, the Four Colors personalities, uh, you're kind of born with them, if you will, but you have, as you age and navigate life, you have learned behaviors that allow for you to express different parts of like a DISC style. And so your, okay. your style at its core isn't necessarily going to change, but the way that it expresses itself in the world is based on your learned behaviors. Okay. So basically, so maybe the, what I did, what, what I, how I did it in, in college may have been more accurate because over time I've changed it. <laughs> yeah. The, you can certainly take it okay. multiple times. I'm in a ritual where every couple of years, I just take the assessment to just see if there's been any tweaks or adjustments and, and that has helped okay. too. So don't be afraid to get into a, some sort of routine or ritual where you just take it, but undoubtedly okay. the core of it's going to remain the same. But there are going to be okay. parts of the way that you show up in the world that are going to be a little bit more particular based on learned behaviors, based on energy, based on societal events. Yeah. Interesting. So basically, the, so the disc ascend, so how can, how can that personality assessment use the disc assessment? How can that really help you understand your clients better? It, it can get really deep, Claire, if you really want it to, because you're looking at things like introversion versus extroversion and how we retain our energy for 
people versus task orientation, because each of those mm -hmm. respective styles, like sometimes each those particular styles, we view ourselves as being more or less powerful than the environment around us. Or sometimes the way that our mm -hmm. brain is hardwired, we might see the environment around us favorably or unfavorably. You're also going mm -hmm. to notice based on particular styles, you're going to see repeated behaviors that they make unknowingly. You're going to be able to notice some of the underlying motivations that guide their behavior. Each DIS or C style has a default fear or emotion under stress, which can be very helpful in the coaching process. Uh, each of the DIS or C styles also has a particular tone of voice, body language, or kind of core strength, right? So these things can be really, really helpful as you're defining who you are. And each DIRCC style also has a particular negotiation or conflict style. So I've gotten to a point of studying this enough that I can read a person's email and predict what their disc style is. Or, yeah, or no. I was going to say <laughs> that. Yeah, you kind of can get an idea. It's so it's so funny because, I mean, you're not the first, like, expert I've been talked to you and I'm like, oh, no, are they sitting here analyzing me right now? <laughs> No, but you know what? Whatever. <laughs> I think I'm pretty solid with myself. Oh, yeah. but That's great. It is. It is funny how you kind of get into this thing of like, oh, my God, what am I putting out there? But um, <clears throat> yeah. yeah, I think that it's it's important because I know that I tell people like when I'm usually giving kind of free tips, I will tell people one of the most important things that you can do. And it's very hard to do, but try to objectively look at what you're putting out into the world. And I think that that's kind of what you're trying to get to the core of is that kind of that objectivity that most people don't have. Yeah, but it's true. And, and I, yeah. And I think a lot of times for what I often tell people is like, um, and, and I think the, the link that, that Stephanie gave you is like, literally, why would anyone care? Why would anyone care about what you're doing? And I think if you really go like, it's like, Ooh, ouch, that hurt. Then work on that yeah. because, you know, and I think that it sounds like similar kind of, you know, oh, you're yeah. going to have, have it kind of a, sci a scientific way, but yeah. It, and I think that sometimes maybe that can be a little easier for someone to take. Oh, for sure. Cause it's like scientifically it says this yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think based on these. We all need a mix, right, Claire? And so having, yeah. you know, I've surrounded myself with individuals that don't think like me really intentionally uh, because, you know, mm -hmm. even though my brain is a little bit more linear or a little bit more introverted, having people around us that are a little bit more expressive uh, or people oriented is so enormously helpful. So that when you're yeah. going through the process of defining a brand, you're not just using someone else's perception of you. You're also using tried and true information that have been around for a hundred plus years that helps you, like, let's say, compare your authentic style to the actual behavior objectively that you're portraying in the world so that you can realign with what your brand actually is. Now, mm -hmm. another way that I've utilized the disc is to also help people avoid experiences that trigger their fears so they don't go down mm. the road of sadness or depression, right? So they stay in this place of being able to live their brand solidly. Uh, it's also really nice to be able to take an assessment like this because you can redefine your strengths and your motivations to know what to say no to or what to say yes to, right? Because that becomes really powerful when you're thinking about where do you share your brand? So when you think yeah. about even having to be a better negotiator, there's power in knowing your disc style, your conflict style. But I think the real truth is, is that regardless of what your style is, collect as much disparate data as you can. The disc is a great place because the real influence and the real power comes from how do you tailor your communication and your brand to the audience that needs to hear it, right? Which are those pieces mm. that you share with them in a way that they can receive it, right? Meet them where they are. I just think there's a lot of power yeah. in that. Yeah.
I like that. So and one of the things that you talk about is um, emotional in- intelligence. And I have some experience with it. I remember my mother always saying my um, <clears throat> my grandmother, she very, very smart, Mensa, like crazy IQ, EQ, constantly shocked by people. And my mom would just be like, I don't even understand. Like, what world are you living in? How do you, why? And so interestingly enough, my, my husband's father was the same way, constantly shocked super smart, amazing things in his life, shocked by people's nature that we're just like, I don't even understand how you could not, I mean, yeah. So, so tell me a little bit more about it. Cause I, I, I know what it is and I know essentially what the effect of it is, but I don't really understand all the nuances. Yeah, it can, it, it is a separate assessment from the disc or the 12 driving forces. And so it is a separate thing, but it's very deeply impactful to what your brand is. And so I perceive emotional intelligence as the ability to sense or understand or apply our personal awareness of our emotions to not only our own life, but others around us in a way that helps us facilitate higher levels of collaboration or productivity, right? That allows us for us to really to get more stuff done. And I think about this through the lens of the higher your EQ, the higher your influence, right? IQ is wonderful, right? And you can become great at that, but as you climb the corporate ladder, your IQ and your capacity to get task work done, it lessens and your EQ must grow in order for your influence to grow. So that's the key is like, as your level of EQ rises, your influence rises and the capacity for people to trust you rises. And there are five dimensions of EQ. It rises with EQ? Yes. Yeah. So, Interesting. Yeah. So when you think about Daniel Goleman and his book from 1995 called Emotional Intelligence in his research in the 70s, 80s and 90s, he found that in terms of success, in terms of us accomplishing our goals, 20% of our success comes from our IQ, but 80% comes from our EQ. And I, there's been other studies that have been similar from Travis Bradbury and Gene Greaves that have kind of confirmed that. But as you think about it, as you become more emotionally intelligent, you become more influential and your brand spreads faster, right? Which is really key. But there are five kind of pieces of EQ. There's self-awareness, right? Which is, which is how, how well do you know yourself? There's self-regulation. Can you stop yourself from being judgmental or hurtful? Can you remain motivated? So number three is motivation to, to do something, to make an impact on the world, even when things in front of you are pretty tough or hard. And four is social awareness, right? How well are you uh, capable of picking up on other people's emotions? And then the fifth one, so social regulation is really about building relationships, right? So I love on your website, you talk about how people invest in the person behind the brand, not just the financials of that person or business, right? So it's really right. critical that when we think about EQ, it'll rise as we climb the ladder, become more influential, but it's really helping us to become more consistent, not only with our online mm-hmm. presence, but also with our in-person presence, right? Because we had now have a meaningful way to engage our community in a way that we might not have before. So I think there's significant power in knowing our EQ and using it to further our brand. Yeah, it's so. What, what I find so interesting is that that for for me, I feel like um, there's just certain things that just very innate in me, and like I EQ, I kind of call it my gut, yeah. my gut yeah. instinct, and I've I this thing. Oh my goodness! I've, sometimes my friends have been like, "Can I borrow your gut?" Because it always tells you the right thing to do, um, and so I'm always just like, "Thank you mm-hmm. for yeah." But it's so interesting to really so so say your literal gut instinct is just way off, or you don't trust it for whatever reason. You have just you don't listen to it. You don't know how to tap into it. Do you find that if you get someone to kind of really learn about their 
current EQ, they can change how they react and oh, yeah. maybe they can learn to tap into their instincts. Big time. Absolutely. Yeah, because okay. we're all born with a very developed level of intuitive ability. But depending on the various things, the situation we're raised in, how our parents believe, you know, the school that we go to, all of these things from our childhood mm -hmm. impact our capacity to stay connected to our intuition. So if they have mm -hmm. learned behaviors or if they have ways that they've been acculturated to be a part of society, then they're not going to trust their instinct or their gut or their intuition as much. So even in yeah. my coaching, when I'm working through defining someone's brand, Sometimes we have to talk about the things that the person learned from their family or their school or their childhood that are actually stopping them from trusting their gut to be able to make good personal branding decisions today. It's just, it's such an interesting thing. You know, I remember, um, I'm also, I did acting for a while and I remember working with one of my very first acting coaches, Anthony Apeson in New York. And <laughs> we were, I was doing, I, 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 you know, I wanted to be in his class and I gave a monologue and he was just like, he just lit into me. He was like, what is wrong with you? I'm like, what do you, what? Oh my God, what is happening? What do you mean? And basically he was like, I think someone literally stunted your emotions. Okay. He, well, and so we, so he's like, I want to work with you privately. We need to work on your emotions. He's like, I need you to be able to like cry freely. What was interesting is, um, I literally had had these, I, I, um, I remember in, I had a job, I was a hostess at a, a restaurant and the boss was so mean. He was, I mean, yelling at me and screaming and then I would stuff it down, go to the bathroom, cry, and then come back and, and, you know, be very tough. And like, that was a learned thing that I learned, you know, working financial services, PR and marketing in New York City, you know, mean bosses, go to the bathroom, cry, you know, put my big girl pants on. And so it was this learned behavior of, I can't show my emotion. I cannot be weak. And it sometimes I, it, it, I, the crying, the welling up of emotions will come over me. And he was like, you need to just let it out. And I do, and it's so crazy. My husband will freak out. He's like, what is happening? Why are you crying? You just, I don't understand. I'm like, you need to let me do it because I can't stuff my emotions anymore to make you feel better. Yeah. Like it's, it's messing me up and it's ridiculous because yeah. I can't, I can't have a conversation because I cry and I'm just like, I need it all. Like, like 25 years of crazy stuffing of my emotions needs to like come out. Like, and I, since then, like I, I don't stuff it in anyway long story that's amazing i feel like that's like a similar kind of thing you it's a learned response you nailed it that is a perfect example yeah so and i and had he not really kind of just said let it go and it's it is it is a crazy thing um and do you find like that i mean the, i remember um i heard from a, a coach that a lot of men have issues with their emotions because women have a much easier time being emotional. Oh, for sure. And it's okay. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And do you find that you're dealing with men? Like a lot of times they're, they are, they have, I mean, 100, I'm, you know, they stuff down their emotions completely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. There's definitely learned behaviors that are not exactly authentic or true to the individual. And so uh, all humans come to earth with both masculine and feminine energies, but men specifically in Western countries are taught to suppress emotion. So it, it is mm -hmm. an accurate statement to say that I, Michael, have spent a lot of time coaching executives that are male to tap into the more kind of feminine energy, that more emotional expressiveness to allow for mm -hmm. them to understand the people around them, 
but also to allow for them to not be overly judgmental or to deliver shame or to fill in the blank that is hurtful to another person. So it is yeah. something that society has taught men to be that is not authentic to who they truly are. And so we're trying to move society back to a place of allowing for more free expression in a very powerful way. So I have, so I have one question and I'm interested to find your feedback on this. So, um, I was, my first experience in, in the working world was in New York city, pretty tough financial world, um, very male dominated. Um, and yeah, like you, you can't cry. You're tough as, as all get out. Like it's just all of these things that, that to make it in New York city, um, at least right after college for me. Um, and then I started working for a, um, a company out of London, based out of London, and, and people were either from Australia or they were, um, they were uh, English, and such different styles of, of, of uh, motivating people, and they did not have the same kind of New York mentality of like, be, you know, no emotions. It was, do you find that, that Americans are very different in, in our, how we're motivated and how we're taught to be and how people manage versus people in other countries in Europe? Oh, for sure. And I think there's actually deeper levels of, of depth too, right? Because uh, you go to different places around the United States and there's different energies that present themselves. So you're right. In New York, mm -hmm. it's very business centric. It's very masculine. But you go to other places where you're going to sense a very different or effeminate uh, aspect. And so, yes, other countries that are a little bit more developed or a little bit older in the sands of history that have had more time to integrate both the male and female kind of aspects, if you will, they allow for more creative expression. Like in Europe, they take entire months off, right? To be able to kind of come back yes. to the basics and find balance. Germany, like they're gone all of August. Yeah. <laughs> or even in China, right? There's much more focus in on family and deference and respect to elders. And so there's definitely mm. macro uh, looks at how it is that each of us shows up in the world based on the culture in which we were raised. But if you look at America, mm -hmm. which has predominantly been very paternalistic and very hierarchical, you can see mm -hmm. different layers of that depending on city. So Chicago, New York, Miami, you know, sometimes Dallas, you're going to get a very business centric place, but you move outside yeah. of those five or six really big cities and you find a much more balanced way of life where people can express the whole of who they are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm in LA, which I, is very different from New York. Yeah. Um, but I definitely, I, so, Given, the, but I, but I do still feel like there's some benefit to still having maybe those like more masculine energies. Cause I, I, one of the things that I, you know, tell people when I'm, when I'm working with them is that you're never going to, you're not going to attract everybody. You're going to attract the ones that, that kind of, they resonate with your energy. Yes. So even if you're not perfect, you still can attract the, you know, your, your ideal clients and, mm -hmm. and obviously you can mold and grow, but do you find that, I mean, so it's, I guess like my, my thing is like, I, I wouldn't want someone to say like, Oh my God, I haven't worked on this sort of stuff. I'm a bad person. Mm -hmm. It's like, you can still work where you are. You can still, you know, attract clients where you are because there are yeah. people kind of on the spectrum of, of all, all sorts of spectrums. Yeah. Like, so anyway, do you find that, that um, it's still a benefit, even if you are a little harder, or a little more masculine or a little more feminine. Absolutely. Um, because it's who you are. Absolutely. Right. And that I, I completely yeah. agree. And there, 
it's really hard to compare your beginning to someone else's middle or end, right? That's not a fair comparison. Mm -hmm. And so what you have to understand, there are 8 billion people on the planet, and there are always people who are just months or years or a decade behind where you're at in your growth trajectory. So whatever experiences mm -hmm. that you've had, they are valuable to you, of course, and to a lot of people on earth, maybe that you just haven't met yet. So squashing the mm -hmm. fear and not and playing a little bit small, because people can tend to play small if they fear something. So it's just being mm -hmm. in that place of understanding that there are thousands, if not millions of people around the world who need your message. So it is absolutely time to share it. Yeah. Well, so do you find that when people learn all this about themselves, do you feel, do you find that sometimes people are kind of stuck in this analysis paralysis of like, oh no, now I know what my flaws are and I'm scared. That's possible. Yeah, I think okay. there are a couple things that I've had clients do to kind of get to that point of saying, okay, I recognize these kind of shadow aspects of myself. Uh, what can I do to overcome them? And so that you can go through a little bit mm -hmm. of like therapy work to find that place of getting over it and honoring that mm -hmm. although your brain perceives it as being negative, there's actually much more positive value inside that learning. So recognize and honor mm -hmm. where you stand. Say, okay, I, my brain initially perceives this as being negative in a, a few days or a few weeks time, I'm going to be able to see that this is actually good. Here are the lessons I've learned from this. Here's the benefit of this. And the real power, the real thing that allows for us to get to that place of acceptance is when we start to teach it to others. So, right? so mm. we initially perceive it as negative. We can find positive value inside of it, but then it becomes healed, if you will, when we start to teach those lessons learned to other people. So it does mm. take proactive, intentional effort, but it is something that can be overcome quite quickly. Yeah, that's, that's, it's, such, I don't know. I, it's such an interesting conversation. I absolutely love like kind of talking about this because there's like, I mean, I know for me, I mean, I've learned, I've had to learn by working with the, with the group out of London that, yeah, there were like certain things in my manager, managerial style that I had learned from others that just were not serving anybody. <laughs> it was not motivating anybody. I wasn't motivated by it, but it was what I'd learned. Yeah. And that's, a, so I think it just that, takes time to, to know these things. And so sometimes it's assessments, yeah. sometimes it's learned experience. You know, sometimes it's having that accountability partner or a coach like Claire around to be able to kind of call you out on mm -hmm. those things. And that's all it takes. Yay. <laughs> well, so you have, you have a new book um, coming out and I wanted to, to, so one of the things that you tackle in it is work-life balance and you know, it's what's what I find interesting is when it, you mention I mentioned that word. There's like a there's like 50 percent of people that are like, ah, it's impossible. It doesn't exist. And you're like, I don't even understand. You work and you live. <laughs> Everyone has work life balance. Yeah. You work. So it's a crazy thing because it's just how people perceive it. But how do you what do you think work like work life balance is? Do you think it's achievable? Yeah, I really do. And I think it's wildly important to uh, each respective person. And again, there's people at different stages of development who can find that balance and there are others who have already mm -hmm. found it. And so when you think about even really recently, right, according to the Great Resignation, the Bureau of Labor Statistics said that in November 2021, 4.5 million people quit their jobs in America, right? So there's something going on. And then Gallup, they, yeah. they do a lot with employee engagement. And then in 2021, the level of employee engagement across America, actually, maybe it might have been across the world, was only 34%. So only 34% of people actually like what they do for a career. And I'll give you one other stat, Claire, is that the American Psychological Association recently did a study, 
and found that 79% of people working are continually feeling work-related stress. So in some ways, work-life balance does not exist because so many people are quitting, very few people are actually liking their work, and so many people, nearly 80% of people who responded to the survey are stressed. So that's a really mm -hmm. important piece to think about. So the way that I think about this is that somehow society, maybe it's the media, whatever, separated work and life. But I really try to teach people that by going back to the basics and identifying yourself through those five data sets that I referenced earlier, you can now have a much more consistent application of which piece of your journey do you wish to share personally and in an office or at work. Right. So mm -hmm. I'm really trying to find a way to guide people to choose a job, a career, an entrepreneurial venture that they're deeply engaged and motivated by, because that's true work life balance is when you're engaged by something, you like it so much, you love doing it. So mm -hmm. that's, I think, the biggest thing. And even for myself personally, whenever I think about my own version of balance or integration, I'm able to learn much more rapidly. And I, I really mean that, right? Because I can be in flow in the moment going through the experience, but then I take time afterwards to journal. You know, what did I learn? What went well? What would I do different? And then I can reflect. And then all of a sudden that allows for me to grow and iterate the next time that I do it. But another mm -hmm. benefit to me and maybe to others is this idea of just health and well-being, right? I haven't really had any type of illness that I can remember probably since my early 20s. And that has allowed for me to be on stage that has allowed for me to show up for more people, right? That has allowed for me to be there for people when they needed me. But I think that's the thing when you think about this is that I want people to really feel this or hear this is that when you know your brand and you have work-life integration or balance, you can pursue your true brand, your true self, right? In mm -hmm. ways that you might not have in years before, right? Because the Michael of right now, I'm 41 years of age now, but the Michael at age 20 was a very different person. Right. And so yeah. being able to walk into the true version of myself and feel a calm or a peace or a balance in my life is so valuable because I remember those days when I didn't. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, so one of the because we are the personal, you know, uh, powerful personal brand podcast, we would be remiss to talk about, you know, your personal brand. But I want to I want to get to something because I can I, I assess people, too. And in that in you also mentioned that you feel like you're an introvert. One of the common things that I hear and I, people talking about is they don't want to put themselves out there. They don't want to put out their, put their personal brand out there. So one, you know, how did you kind of get over essentially your fears to put yourself out there and to put out your personal brand? Yeah. Way back when I first started coaching, it was 2009. <clears throat> so it's been quite a while. And the way that I did it as an introvert was I wrote. And so I just started mm. blogging and that was my way to express myself in a way that was safe for me because I could write while nobody else was around. And so I knew that I needed to do it, but I wasn't sure how. So it initially began for me simply by writing. And then I built up my courage through that to know that my ideas and my processes had value. Then I started working as a career coach at Arizona State University to actually test it. Right. Mm -hmm. And that helped me tremendously. Right. So for about two and a half, three years, I was just being able to be through thousands of hours with hundreds of these students to test the ideas that I had been already writing about. Right. That was really, really yeah. helpful. And then inside of that, I was also able to teach some classes and to start public speaking. And in those days, there was a lot of fear and anxiety and nervousness for me as an introvert. But I was very careful about softly doing it in a safe way 
Whereas an extrovert might start with public presentations in front of large audiences because that gives them energy. I started mm -hmm. small by writing and then coaching people one-to-one -one and then teaching classes and then expanding my business from there. Okay. So it was, it was a, it was a slow process Yeah. to kind of get to the point where you were like, okay, I need to put out everything into the world. It definitely was like, I launched my business yeah. formally in October, 2011, but I didn't start working the business full time until January 1st, 2015. So there was a three year time frame where I was growing and building business, but I was spending more time learning from other people around me in a way that was safe for me. Yeah. So I think that, I guess like that, if you are struggling with that, it takes the, the, the path is a little bit longer to compound. Mm -hmm. For your personal brand. Yeah, it can be. And if you just like dig in yeah. and, I, I, and, and share, because there's, there's so much information. I think that that's one of the biggest things that um, I often tell people is that if you kind of take yourself out of the mix, right? Again, it's not important about how you feel, who it doesn't matter. You literally, if, by sharing your information, I think this has been, I think it's been amazing and, and I've learned a lot. Had you not been here to talk about it, who would know? You may have helped someone in this conversation. So I think a lot of times people need to get out of their own way of sharing the information in here because it can it can actually help people. Yeah. So I always make people, I always tell people to, to go into personal branding. You have to go into it with an altruistic nature. You have to, if you are so focused on on selling your program, your book, your this, your that, you you forget the sharing of knowledge and that's what's going to make people really like you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's where. And so I think that that's one of the biggest things. I don't know. That's like, that's like one of the biggest things where I always tell introverts is if you want a faster path, just share your information. Yep. I completely agree. And so if, if it's yeah. the writing or if it's some other means, there's significant value right at the top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs is that we desire growth and development for ourselves but we also desire to contribute to the growth and development for others. And so you nailed it, Claire. Mm -hmm. It's all about sharing yourself in the way that feels safe to you initially, but do it in the service altruistically or selflessly for those people around you because they would like the information too. Yeah. And you know, and that for, for people that are scared, it feels so good because you know, there, you not you're not going to get a lot of feedback. You know, you don't, oh, it's not, people go to your website. I may have, I have thousands of people that go to my website, but I don't have, I don't, not all those people will come back to me and say, Hey, Claire, this really helped me. Yeah. But during this conversation, you said, you know what? I read that and it was really interesting. Mm -hmm. And that makes, it does, it makes me feel really good. Yeah. So a lot of times you're not going to get the feedback from every single person, but the one time you do, I don't know what the, there's like a, 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 you know, statistic on that, that says like for the one person that's, that actually says something, there's this many people that probably also feel the same way mm -hmm. that didn't say anything. And I don't, I wish I, I mentioned this a lot and I never, I wish I knew what that stat was. <laughs> um, Nicole, remind me to do that. <laughs> She's listening. Um, Anyway, so basically, yeah, it's an, such an interesting thing. Yeah. So I, this has been such an amazing conversation, Michael. Yeah. I've, I've learned a lot, and I definitely think the listeners have learned a lot. And I know that you have a new book, and I would love for people that are super interested. Okay, there it is. Right there. <laughs> so how can people find out about your book? How can people connect with you to learn more about themselves? 
Yeah, that's certainly what I've attempted to do with michaelssiever.com. Uh, so my middle name is Scott. So there's two S's there in the center, michaelssiever.com. And there's links, of course, to buy the book and things there. But so the book is called I Know, and it's available uh, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Google, Apple, 40,000 retailers around the globe. And the book is really designed to walk you from that place of disengagement, not really knowing or having that clarity, if you will, to at the very end, feeling clear and confident about your life's purpose and its work. So michaelsieber.com is a repository for many resources and ideas. The book is a process step-by-step -step, to get you that point of clarity for yourself. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. This was a great conversation. I'm, I'm super excited. I always get excited after like a fun <laughs> conversation of learning stuff. So anyway, thank you for being here. And thank you guys for listening. And um, again, all of those, the information that Michael gave will be in the description box and in the show notes. So until next time, thank you so much for listening, watching, and we'll see you later. Bye-bye.